Well, with that, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of Genesis again. And if you've got your all-in booklet, turn uh, to page 56 where you can follow along and take some notes. We're in a series that we've entitled Abraham and All in Life. And what a great title. What a great reminder of the life of Abraham in, in one short sentence or, or phrase. We know exactly, without even reading a, a word of the story about who Abraham is and what his life was all about, God had him on a journey of what it meant to be all in. And we're going to see that right when he thinks he's gone all in enough, uh, that there's going to be more. And, and we're going to culminate this with one of the greatest stories in all of Scripture, one of the greatest pictures of faith and sacrifice when we get to Genesis 22, and I won't spoil it for those that maybe don't know the rest of the story, but it is truly awesome, and it's the reason why Abraham, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, when we deal with the great hall of faith, if you will, Abraham, amongst all the people that had lived up to that point, is given more words, more verses, more time and attention than any of the great men and women of the faith. And the reason why is he shows us what it means to be all in for him. And we've been learning what being all in is about. And I want to remind us of an important truth. All in doesn't just have to do with our pocketbooks. It has way more to do with all of our life and all facets of our life and, and really what it has to do with, not so much with the details of our life, but our relationship with God. If we get that vertical relationship with God on the right track and in the right place, then every decision that we make, every relationship that we have uh, will be blessed by God in as much as saying that God will be with us, He'll provide what we need, and He will get us to from point A to point be because the one who began a good work in us will be faithful to see it to completion. Now, that road and that journey is not always easy. And sometimes it's filled with all kinds of bumps along the way, winds and, and turns and curves that come out of nowhere. And we're going to see that in the life of Abraham. And like Abraham, for many of us, we will have really, really good days where it will seemingly be altogether easy to be all in. But there will be other days where we will struggle, where we will seemingly get lost, where we will find ourselves being all in for ourselves instead of being all in for God. And as we look at Abraham's life, we're learning what it means through the good, the bad, and ugly of Abraham's life, what it means to be all in. And what we've learned so far is being all in means following God following him when he calls us to something that we go to where he's calling us that we obey him in what he is calling us to do the second thing we learned is what it means to prioritize God that to be all in for God means he has to be the first and and best in our life and because of that everything that we do our time our our calendars our our money all of it has to funnel through our relationship with Jesus Christ because he is the most important and greatest thing that we have in our lives. And today we're going to learn what it means to trust God, to give our lives in trust to him. But what we're going to learn today is trust is easy when things are going well. Trust is easy when everything's working out as it should. But what about those waiting rooms in life? 
What about those times where God's answer doesn't come like we've asked for it to? Where God, instead of saying yes or no to a prayer request, says, slow. We're going to wait. You're going to find yourself waiting on things. The Bible is full of waiting rooms. That's a, a series I would love to do at some point, the waiting rooms of Scripture. Because we see them over and over again. And in the first two books of the Bible, we see three uh, waiting rooms. Abraham, he waits for Isaac, and he's going to wait 25 years for a promise God gave him at 75. It won't come to fruition until he's 100. And then there's a waiting room in one of Abraham's descendants' lives, and that's Joseph. Joseph is going to go from the prized son in his father's house to being a prisoner and to being one who is put in prison for 13 years. He would wait on the dream that God had given him. And then fast forward to the book of Exodus and we see the waiting room of Moses. For 40 years, God would move and shape Moses in the waiting room of Midian. Until God had seen his perfect work done in Moses' life. And it was then and only then at 80 years of age that God would now commission Moses through the burning bush to go and to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Waiting rooms are hard. And I know for some of you this morning, you find yourself in a waiting room. Oh, our waiting rooms are different. Some of us are waiting in the waiting room of infertility, waiting for a child. And the sorrow that comes month after month when that, that desire, that, that want is left undone. Some of you are waiting for a spouse. You find yourself in singleness and wondering, when is the love of my life going to enter my life? And that's a constant and maybe even a daily prayer that God would answer that. But it hasn't come. Maybe it's a career or a job to provide for your family or, or an opportunity to use what you've learned and, and to start your life in adulthood and that job opportunity or career hasn't come. Maybe it's an answer to a medical concern. I hate those waiting rooms. Have you ever noticed when you do a test, you do a test on Thursday and they say, we'll get back to you next week. Have a great weekend. It's hard to have a great weekend when you're in a waiting room. Others are waiting for a relationship to be reconciled. Others of you are waiting because you've lost someone and you're waiting for heaven for that reunion so that you may be reunited with that loved one. If we're honest, waiting rooms are no fun, but this is an important truth. In fact, write this down somewhere on that sheet. God does his best work in waiting rooms. And so if you walk away with anything this morning, recognize that God is a master at making us better in the waiting rooms of life, whatever they are. He uses those times to take us low so he can, in the right time and right place, bring us high. And that's what God is going to do in the life of Abraham. So whatever it is you're waiting on this morning... Whatever you're wondering about, the goal in that waiting room experience is for you to have a healthy and vibrant relationship with God. And the way that you do that, the only way that you can do that is by trusting God.
in that time of waiting. Now remember, Abraham hears from God when he's 75 years of age, about middle age for Abraham. And one of the things that God has promised Abraham is a son. And now years have gone by, and that promise hasn't come. No doubt in his household of of individuals and those that were working under him, they no doubt had children. Children were born in. We are told that Abraham, his household gets larger and larger. We learned last week that it had gotten so large that him and his nephew Lot have to separate because the land can't contain all the blessing and all the people that God had given. And so Abraham and Sarah, who have been given this certain promise, are watching first and second and third birthdays of, of children born under their house. But the one that said from God that this was going to happen, nothing had taken place. And they find themselves in a waiting room. And Genesis 15 is what God does when we're in the waiting room. And it's a reminder of what we are to do and how we are to be in those moments of waiting this morning. But let's get some terms down this morning. Write down this. First of all, what is trust? If you were to Google trust, this is what you would see on your computer. It is a firm belief in the reliability the truth, the ability, the strength of someone or something. That is a great definition of trust. And if you think about it, you're doing that all the time. You did that this morning when you uh, hit the brakes on your car. You had a firm belief in the reliability and strength of the manufacturer of the vehicle that you're driving, that it was going to stop. You trusted it, and you put all of your weight on it. You do this in relationships. You trust someone. You, you allow yourself, in the most intimate of ways, to be known by someone else, probably most greatly seen in the marriage relationship. You've revealed all of who you are to another person, believing that they are reliable, altogether trustworthy to care for you and nurture you and and love you and not bring you harm or destruction. That's what makes the break of relationships absolutely uh, destructive to one's life and, and joy. We see this in the business world. As a caterer, people trust on the phone or through an email that when I say I'm going to bring food for their special event and that it will be served at the time it is, at the location that it is, at the right temperature that it needs to be and that it would taste good, my customers are putting a huge amount of trust in my ability to be able to perform what I say I'm going to do. It's seen within the church. We have to trust our leaders, we have to trust our pastors. You have to listen for this relationship to work. You have to trust that what I've done in the scriptures this morning is altogether right and good. Now, that doesn't mean you blindly trust. You are to be Bereans in that process. But the relationship in the church will be altogether erratic and dysfunctional if we don't trust one another and rely on one another and believe that one another can help us in our time of need. We need to have trust. Now, here's the problem. 
there are three places you can put your trust. There's three options. And, and when I talk about trust, I'm talking about your ultimate trust. All of your life, not just one relationship or one situation, but all of who you are. There are three places you can go. The first place you can go is to, to say, I'm going to put my trust in fate or happenstance. And what this is, is that you believe that there's something out there, something that is ordering life, but it's impersonal. It doesn't care really about you, but it's there and it's governing the lives of everybody. And what you're hoping for, what you're trusting in, is that more good is going to happen than bad. We call these things karma. We call these things providence. We call these things happenstance. And there are people that trust that if I've been good, therefore good things will happen to me. The problem with that is there's no real rhyme or reason to this thing. And so how can something that has no rhyme or reason be altogether trustworthy? It can't. The second thing that you can do, the second option that you can have is to trust yourself. Now this is altogether fun and feels right and feels natural. This is me putting my confidence in myself and, and it's altogether good and reasonable because I know what I know. I know my abilities. I know my limitations. And so I'm going to put my trust, the weight of the world is going to be on me and I like it because I'm going to be the one who's going to be able to navigate the trials and tribulations and even the triumphs of life. I am the captain of my vessel and so I'm going to put my trust in myself and I will tell you this is probably by far the most popular of options for people in this world. We trust ourselves, we trust our abilities, we trust our thinking, we trust ourselves that we will get through life and we white knuckle it all the way. Here's the problem with that. We don't know what a day might bring. We're fallible, we're finite. And there's so many things going on in this world that are outside of our control. And so trusting in ourselves seems to be a reasonable thing to do until we read the scriptures. Because the Bible says that some trust in men and others trust in chariots and, 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 and all manner of things. Some of us trust in money and, and our possessions. But the scriptures say our trust must be in God. That's the third option. God. And so if you read the Bible, you're going to see that nothing happens as a result of happenstance or fate. That God is the one and true sovereign over all the worlds. And because He's sovereign, we can't trust ourselves. We need to turn and trust in Him. That's why Proverbs chapter 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. What Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is telling us is we have to trust God. If we have any hope for today, if we have any hope to surpass the difficulties and struggles, if we are going to make it through this waiting room, we have to trust God. Now this is what God is calling Abraham to. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to trust him. It is trust that allows Abraham to leave 
Ur of the Chaldeans and to make his journey to Canaan where God has promised him something. You cannot follow God without trusting God first. And so what does it mean? What was God calling Abraham to to trust him? Because again, I think just as we talked about prioritizing God, it's easy for us to say, yeah, God, I trust you. But when we put it down on paper and we read what trusting God really means, we begin to see the holes in our confession. Write this down, trusting God. And I'm going to merge some things together here. Google's definition and what Scripture tells us. That trusting God means that I have a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, and strength of God. That's where my trust is. I am holding steadfast to who God is, that God is enough. And so what that means when I trust Him is no matter what happens to me, and I want you to dig the depths of what could happen to you, whatever it is, I'm going to turn to God instead of away from Him. I'm going to run to Him in my hour and place of need, even though every part of me wants to grab the wheel and start being the one who leads the direction of where my life is going to go. Trusting in God is letting go and letting God. And believing because of who He is, and because of what He's done, and because of what He says... He is reliable. He is altogether trustworthy. The Bible speaks of it in a different way. That he is altogether faithful. Utterly faithful. Consistently faithful. Perfectly faithful. Now as we see this definition, I want you to recognize it's easy to write, it's hard to live. Amen? It's easy to tell people that this is what it means to trust God, but your preacher has a hard time trusting that. And it's not because God has failed in some way, or I'm concerned because I've looked at God's resume or, or stat sheet and said, you know, he doesn't work too well in this situation or scenario. But it's because of some things that we'll talk about in a moment. And so what do we have going on? In your Bibles, turn to Genesis 15 if you haven't yet. And in Genesis 15, we find Abraham at probably one of the lowest places in his life. That's what waiting rooms do. They have you begin to doubt who you are, what you're doing, and why you are where you are. And Abraham has some real doubts, he has some real fears, he has some real anxieties and concerns about where he's at and what he is to do. Notice in verse 1 it says, after these things. After what things? Well, remember, in Genesis 13, Abraham and Lot separate. And Abraham, being the generous uncle, offers to his nephew the first choice of land as they separate. And he shows him all of Canaan, the promised land of God. So Abraham is giving part of the gift that he was given by God himself to his nephew. His nephew makes an unwise and I would say in fact selfish and sinful decision to go and make his camp, his land, outside of Canaan in the land 
of the area called Zoar, where the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are. And Lot knows what's going on there, and he's, he's driven by the sensuality that takes there, the selfish living that takes place there. But he also sees of what it can gain him because that area is full of lush vegetation and awesome greenery. And he says, I can make a name for myself in a place like that. And so they depart. And chapter 13 moves to God speaking to Abraham. And Abraham goes to dusty, dry Canaan. And God says at the end of chapter 13, lift up your eyes and look. My promises are true and right. And just as your feet go through the dust particles of the ground, so shall your descendants be as numerous as the dust particles beneath your feet. And then the chapter we didn't talk about, because it focuses in more on Lot than it has anything to do with Abraham, and we want to stay uh, with the spotlight on Abraham, Genesis 14, right away, Lot finds himself in trouble. And what scholars believe has taken place is he's placed himself in the midst of a provincial war that's taking place. There are five kings on one side, four kings on another, and they're waging war, and Lot finds himself in the middle of this epic battle. And he's captured by one of the kings, and he and his entire household are held hostage. And Abraham takes a couple hundred men, and he does a nighttime raid. And in the nighttime raid, under the, uh, the disguise of secrecy, and having the element of surprise, is able to decimate the enemy and to recapture for himself his nephew and all of their households. And it's an incredible victory. Now, right away you need to understand something. The, the, the kingdoms around Abraham were vaster than his was. And he had won a surprise attack. And in Genesis chapter 15, as it opens up, Abraham is scared for his life. He has done what George Washington did, and that's crossed the Delaware in a surprise raid and won against a superior army, but now that superior army was no doubt going to come back and seek revenge on Abraham, and he was going to be no match. And so he is scared for his life. They're coming for me. They're going to decimate us. And the God who had been with him the God who had spoken to him and promised a great many things to him, now the two things that Abraham had been promised, a son and land, well, he hadn't had a son yet, and the land, well, that's going to be gone because they're going to come and they're going to kill us and take our land. And God, you're altogether quiet right now. You haven't brought me a son. I've got nothing that shows that you are altogether trustworthy. And so Abraham in Genesis 15 finds himself in a place of great sorrow and fear. And what we're going to see in three different elements is how Abraham is moved to trust God and how we are to trust him as well. So let's talk about it. In a time of great sorrow and fear and anxiety and waiting, we need to first of all get real with God. That's what trusting God is. It's getting real with Him. Notice in the text, 
The word of the Lord comes. I want you to recognize how very important that is. Abraham doesn't tell God about his problem. God already knew about Abraham's problem and shows up. I want you to know this morning that you are so loved by your heavenly father that God knows what's causing you great consternation. He knows what's hurting. And he shows up at just the right time in just the right way. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God recognizes his child's hurting and in trouble. And he comes and he gives Abraham something that will enable him to endure this time of great struggle and turmoil. And notice right away, he knows what's going on. He says, fear not. That phrase, fear not, will be seen more than a couple hundred times in all of Scripture. One individual says that, in fact, and I don't know if it's true, I just, I believe it because it just sounds too perfect, that there are 365 fear nots in the Scriptures, one for every day of our fear. That sounds great. It's got to be true, right? That's what Abraham Lincoln said about the Internet. It works. So if someone wants to do some research, I'll buy you a cone at Culver's. You come back with all the underlines of fear knots, and I'll take you out for an ice cream cone if it's true. But that sure does seem like God, right? That in our moments of fear, God meets us. And he addresses what concerns us. And right away, he says, I'm your protector, and I'm your provider. There are two things that are bothering Abraham right now. The enemy's going to come and decimate me, And I'm going to continue to be childless as a result. The promises of God won't come true. God right away says, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to provide for you. Now here's what I love about Abraham. He does not say, as our teenage children do, when we tell them something, oh, all right, you say so, then it's great. Glad we talked. No. Abraham questions God. He questions God, even though God has uniquely said, I'm going to do these things for you. Abraham says, I'm not quite sure about that, God. And what I love about this, write this, what it means to get real with him involves honesty. It involves honesty. Write that down somewhere. Abraham says, honestly, I'm not sure. This is what I love about scripture. It's real. It's not robotic. It's raw. Here is this man of faith who's getting real with God and he's in essence saying, I want to believe you, God, but what have you done for me lately? It sure seems like I'm dealing with life all on my own. Your promises seemingly have fallen on deaf ears and you've promised a lot of things, but let's be honest, they have not come to fruition and and I'm not quite sure I can trust you. I love that. The great man of faith is questioning God and wants you to notice that with these honest questions of Abraham to God, there's never a rebuke by God. When our children question us in the Bedal home, they get a very demonstrative rebuke. Who do you think you're talking to? I am your father. You need to trust me. You need to believe that what I say is going to become true. My kids look and they, "Mm, I don't know, old man. Not quite sure. And when they do that, I become even more demonstrative. But with God, 
God hears this, and he has a conversation. I want you to know that when you're real with God, God is not going to get angry with you. God's not going to knock you down or knock you out. God is going to have a conversation because God longs to relate with his children. Now, it's important. Bring your concerns. Bring your questions. Bring even your your struggles to God openly. God, I don't see it. God, what are you doing for me? We see this in the life of David over and over again. But what you need to do is a lot of us come with honesty and that's a good start. But there has to be, with honesty, humility. Write that down, humility. You see, getting real with God, yes, involves honesty, but it involves humility. Twice in our scriptures, we see that Abraham addresses God as Lord God, sovereign God, ruler God. He knows his place. He knows who he's talking to. He knows he's finite and God is infinite. He knows he's impotent, but God is omnipotent. He knows all of these things to be true. And though he's struggling from an earthly perspective, he has the humility to say, I am not God, you are. And I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to question you, but I'm going to do so with utter humility that you don't have to respond to me. I love it when Job questions God. And God says, I am the Lord. And he begins to walk through all of the things. And he says, Job, were you there when I did this? Nope. Were you there when I did that? Nope. Then you need to trust me in the here and now. And so he's honest with God. Now, notice that, yes, God longs to interact with us. But notice, just because we're honest with God and humble with God, it doesn't change our circumstances. He still has enemies. And he still has no child. So what is God going to do? Is God going to say, you know what? Because you came honestly and humbly to me, I'm going to give you what you want. That's what we think. We barter with God. If I'm humble enough and honest enough, then God, you're going to come and and do the things that I need you to do. But he doesn't. He doesn't doesn't fulfill the promise. He doesn't give Abraham what he wants. What does he give? Notice the next thing that is involved in trusting God, ongoing reminders. So what God is going to do is God's going to say, let me remind you of some things. Let me remind you of what I've promised you. Abraham needs encouragement. In verses 4 through 7, God speaks. And he says, listen, behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. This man shall not be your heir. Abraham had set a servant, Eleazar of Damascus, his head servant, to be his descendant, to be his heir. And God says, that's not the answer. No, this one shall not be your heir. Your very own son, literally from your own body, shall be your heir. And he brought Abraham outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and accounted to him as righteousness. And God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Stop there. God says, let me tell you about what I've been doing in the past. Let me remind you of all that's transpired. You want encouragement? Let me remind you. Let's go back. Let's do some summer school and remind you of the truths that you already knew. I am that same God who has brought you from point A to point B, where you find yourself. Now, I recognize point B is not the end result. That's point C. 
But if you keep worrying about point C and forget about point A to point B, you're going to be filled with anxiety and worry and a lack of faith because you can't see forward. And so what does God do? God knows we can't see forward, so God encourages us by looking backwards. You see, worry and anxiety is always forward thinking. And God says, stop thinking forward. No man or woman knows what a day might bring. So the way that you find hope is to look backwards and see all that God has done up to that point. And he says, listen, I've given you these things. So Abraham is an example of what God does with each of us. Now, Abraham's heard this stuff before. He's heard it in Genesis 12. He's heard it in Genesis 13. He's going to hear it again in Genesis 15. He's going to hear it again in Genesis 17. He's going to hear it again in Genesis 21. God is going to remind Abraham again and again and again, don't lose hope, look back. And I want you to be reminded of this incredible truth that over 10 times in the New Testament, we are called to be reminded of things. Don't forget these things. Now, why are reminders so important? There are three things that I want you to write down. Number one, we need reminders because we fear. Abraham's worried about what's going to happen to him. He's filled with fear. And so he needs ongoing reminders to tell him God has taken care of me up to this point. And if I really believe God's promise, then I can't die. Because God hasn't given me that air that he's promised me. So fear doesn't need to be an issue. But likewise, we fear. And it's okay to fear. It's altogether human for us to fear. But we need to remember what God has done. We need to look back to what God has done in our past that gives us hope and a bright future no matter what may be ahead of us. Number two, we forget. Each of us have spiritual amnesia. Isaiah 17, 10 and 11 says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. And so trials and troubles come, and our response is a natural response. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? What, what is going to happen to me? And in that moment of terror, we have forgotten the goodness of God. That's why Peter says in 2 Peter 1.12, Therefore I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, so that you may be established in the truth which is present in you. So we need reminders not because we don't know these things to be true, but we forget these things and we forget to apply them when the troubled times come. And so God says, Abraham, let's go over this again. I love you. And I want to give you some things. You're going to be given a land. You're going to be given a son. And you're going to be a blessing to all of the world. And your descendants are going to now outnumber the dust particles of the ground. And maybe that didn't work for you. So look up to the sky and you see all the stars. That's what your descendants are going to be like. Let's just remind you. Let's go over these things again. So that you can have trust in what I'm doing. But notice we lack one other thing. And that's faith. Notice in verse 8, after God clearly reiterates his promises that are going to come true, Abraham comes back. 
There's an argument taking place. It's an honest and, and, and uh, respectful argument. But Abraham responds in verse 8 and says, How am I to know that I will possess this land and this son? How do I know your promises are going to come true? I'm so glad for this verse because it shows me there's hope for me. Abraham had heard directly from God and he was struggling to believe. And so when I open my scriptures and I try to believe God and, and hope in the things of God and struggle to do so, I'm in good company and so are you. And God's patient, by the way. He's patient to see it through. So God says, okay, the stars aren't doing it for you. The dust particles aren't doing for you, Abraham. Go get me some animals. And notice in the text what Abraham does is he goes about bringing some things. Verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And it says Abraham brought him all these things. And he says, I want you to cut them in half. And I want you to lay one half against the other. And it says he didn't cut the birds. Why? I don't know. Um, it's a question we can ask in heaven. And it says that as he was doing this, the birds of prey in verse 11 are swooping down to try to eat the carcasses, but Abraham drives them off. And as the sun's going down, a deep sleep falls on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in land that's not theirs and will be servants there. And he goes on and he starts talking. And so God says, okay, I want you to do something. Now, here's the issue. We, we really don't understand the fullness of what God is doing. We, 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 it's hard to understand because a lot of this is lost in antiquity. But what we know is God's creating a contract. We know enough from history, both secular and, and, and biblical history, that this is how contracts were made. You would butcher up an animal, and you would bring each a side of an animal from, from each place, and two people, two parties, would put those two animals together, binding it by blood, and then, in essence, calling curses on themselves if they don't fulfill that covenant with one another. Aren't you glad that now you just make covenants with emails? It was altogether a dirty proposition. But this is what God tells him. And what God says is, I am going to be the ratifier of both sides of the covenant. This is the uh, Abrahamic covenant. A covenant that theologians say is the most, co the most important covenant in all of the scriptures because it contains by implication a covenant not just with Abraham but all of humanity that God would send his son to the earth to save us from our sins. And so this messy, this dirty, this bloody covenant, God says, I want you to do these things but I'm going to be the one that signs both sides of the deal. And what that means is, Abraham, you can't fail yourself out of this deal. Do you see the connection, believer, about the connection of the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant, the new covenant by Jesus' blood in our salvation? Listen, God ratifies our salvation, both sides of it. And the scriptures tell us nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's a new covenant. Listen, you can't fail. You can't sin yourself out of the covenant of God. Now, that doesn't mean sin so grace may abound, Paul talks about. 
But that should give you a great level of assurance that, that when you sin, when you fail, and Abraham's going to fail miserably in the next chapter, when he does it, God says, you can't mess this thing up. This is my covenant. This is my plan. I've ratified both sides of it. And so what God wants us to do, and what it means to trust, listen, is to rest in God alone. Write that down. We've got to rest in God. We've got to rest in Him. We've got to put all of our weight, all of our faith. We've got to rely on Him. And, and what resting means, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Remember, you're in this waiting room. He's waiting. He's concerned. Am I going to die? Am I ever going to have a son? Sure doesn't seem like those promises of blessing are going to come true. And God says through the words of Paul, centuries later, and we know that for those who love God, that all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God says, I know you don't get it right now, but you will in one day. You will see it come to fruition and you will see my purposes and my plans for you. As difficult as this time may be, I work all things together for the good for those whom I love. That's true of Abraham. And listen, beloved, that's true for all of us who called Jesus Christ our Savior. And so what we need to do is we need to rest. Now, notice in the text a couple things about resting and I'll close. Number one, to rest means we have to be ready for tough times. We have to be ready for tough times. We don't rest because we think, well, then God's got it all taken care of and everything's going to be fine and dandy and we're going to all live happily ever after. Right away in this covenant, he says, listen, your people, though they will be a people of blessing, though they will be my inheritance, though they will be my people, they're going to experience 400 years of slavery. This is a prophecy Fast forwarding from Genesis to the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel are in bondage for 400 years, he names the years that's going to be 400 years of enslavement to Pharaoh in Egypt. And then he promises what's going to take place. He says, you're going to live. You'll see a ripe old age, Abraham. You're going to be an old man. And what is that a reminder of? None of your neighbors are going to kill you. You're not going to die. You're okay. You're protected. And you're going to see your son. And one day, after 400 years of enslavement, God prophesies in Genesis 15, and your people will take inheritance of the land. They'll take possession of it. And that's the story of Joshua and, and the great uh, destruction of the land of Canaan, driving out the pagan people of the land so that they would have that promised land. It's not going to be easy. Resting in God is hard. It's what God wants us to do, but it's going to be tough at times. There's going to be years of exodus. There's going to be years of, of trouble along the way. Resting in God means not running away from Him, even when every part of us wants to. Finally, resting in God means don't rush into foolish decisions. We're not going to talk about this this week, but Genesis 16, I mean, talk about bipolar. Abraham goes from trusting God, 
And notice it says, now Sarai, Abraham's wife, verse 1, had borne him no children, but she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, behold, now God has prevented me from bearing children, so go into my servant that it may be that I may obtain children by her. And we know what happens there, and it's ugly, and it's messy, and it's totally dysfunctional. And what happens is, is Abraham and Sarah struggle in that waiting room. Even after the ongoing reminders of God, they, they move forward and they do something that will have massive implications on their life and their family and generations to come. Two major religions war with one another, that of Islam and Judaism, because of Ishmael and Isaac. And so when we rest in God, it means we can't rush into bad decisions, into bad places. But we've got to wait on God. We've got to trust God. And what God does through his scriptures and the job of this pulpit ministry is to remind not only you but myself that God's in control. And God has a plan. And God has a bright and awesome future in store for us. But for us to experience it, not only in the future, but in the here and now, we have to trust and we have to obey. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your reminders of who you are and what you've done and how you have called us to believe you and trust you and follow you. And I pray now, Lord, whatever we may be waiting on, and it could be a myriad of things, Lord, that in the quietness of this time of prayer, that we would be able to say, whatever it is, Lord, I trust you. I trust your timing. I trust your, your um, placement. I trust your provision. I trust that you know what is best for me. And so I'm going to rest in you. I'm not going to worry and be anxious about it, but by prayer and supplication, I'm going to give it to you. Lord, when we do that, you say you'll give us the peace of God, which transcends all understanding in Christ Jesus. And so I pray that that gift of peace will be given to each person here as they call upon you. Thank you for reminding Abraham. And though he didn't get it at first, and though he didn't get it even after this, You didn't fail him. You didn't leave him. You didn't yell at him. You loved him. And you walked along the journey with him. And Lord, I'm thankful for myself that you haven't left me or forsaken me because of my foolish decisions. But you teach me each and every day what it means to rest in you. And all that's happening in our world today, let this place, let this people be known as a people trust God and rest in him alone. Thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.